KPBS On Demand is brought to you by the San Diego County Toyota dealers. Committed to a reliable driving experience with vehicles like the 2021 RAV4 with Toyota Safety Sense technology and normal eco and sport for tailored driving dynamics. Learn more at buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. From So Say We All in KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Today's episode focuses on two stories about invasion, both psychological and literal. And we're very lucky to be able to pair up two contributors who actually served together at the same time in Iraq, but from very different places. Our first contributor, Francisco Martinez Coelho, is a Mustang officer, which means he began as an enlisted Marine and then transitioned into officer candidate school, and Sami Saeed, an Iraqi man who was just a teenager when he became an interpreter for the Marine Corps, and in a very literal way, was raised by them. We're going to start off with Frank, a 20-year Marine veteran who serves with me at So Say We All as one of the leading teaching artists with our Veteran Writers Division. His work is phenomenal, and I benefit from his leadership and friendship every day. And you can read the story he's going to perform for you today in the journal Collateral, available online. Here's Francisco. Hi, my name is Francisco Manuel Martinez Cuello, and I'm going to share with you Tell Me a Story. The zygomaticus major and minor muscles are better known as the smiling muscles. I first noticed my zygomaticus muscles atrophied in October 2015 while I was at Avon's in San Diego when the front swiveling wheels of my shopping cart seized up. The shopping cart was invented by Sylvan Goldman of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Sylvan sat in his office one night in 1936 and wondered how he could get his customers to move more groceries. And yet, I was stuck in aisle 13 at the supermarket, not moving anything. The increase in static friction forced my back to round and head to dip, while I shortened my steps, still unable to move an empty 35-pound aluminum vessel. My 13-year-old twins, amused with my struggle, offered comic relief by making faces at me as I kicked and whispered expletives at the winning wheel. I scratched my left wrist and adjusted my memorial bracelet that I had purchased in February 2004, while Tavaya, the eldest by two minutes, held a jar of Smucker's apple butter. What you got there, bub? I asked in between pushes and grunts. What do people use this for? She raised the jar in a synchronized fashion. I can't read the jar. I squinted. I scratched my hairy face. I hate scruffies, Dad. Nyoka, the younger twin, smirked, referring to my failed attempt at bearding. My zygomaticus muscles did not respond. My father hadn't been in my life since I was three and my parents divorced. I cannot comprehend what it's like to have a father let alone a life of Marine veteran who missed years of his children's lives. My daughters were on a repetitive seven-stage emotional cycle of deployment. This cycle included anticipation of loss, detachment and withdrawal, emotional disorganization, recover and stabilization, anticipation of homecoming, renegotiation of marriage, and reintegration and stabilization. Stage one, anticipation of loss, came to me when I was sitting in the transition assistance program classes that separating service members receive. I had received my DD-214 and officially retired from the Marine Corps in September 2015, and my mind was going through this seven-stage cycle for the third time. 
The first time was during my year-long stay in Iraq 2008. The second was Afghanistan 2011. And now, I was deploying from the Marine Corps. My twins stared at their stage two, detached and withdrawn father, a man foreign to them, bound by blood, who made them uneasy, but whom they mimicked and teased to alleviate tense situations. They called me names like Beardo in order to get a response from my expressionless face. In the Marines, we are taught to compartmentalize our emotions and not allow them to interfere with the decision-making process. Emotions cause hesitation, which leads to loss of life. But when my daughters would hesitate kissing me goodnight as if they were smooching a porcupine, I would be lying if I said it didn't bother me. Smucker's apple butter, I said. I used to know someone who loved the stuff. Tell me a story, Dad. At that particular moment, it was hard to tell if my daughter came up with that phrase organically or if she was mimicking me again. Tell me a story transported me back to a world where my zygomaticus major and minor were flexible and strong, undefeated against sadness and anger. March 2000 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I was a young enlisted man, a sergeant, and a Marine security guard at the American consulate in Rio de Janeiro. I was the new guy and my immediate supervisor had just returned from Bahia, Brazil. His name was Denton Kyle Seitzinger, but he preferred Kyle for short. Kyle felt it appropriate that FNGs, friggin' you guys, work all the holiday shifts so that the senior members of the team could enjoy life. I had transferred from Kampala, Uganda, flying from one continent to another. A long flight that caused my short temper to flare, then landed on the eve of Carnival only to go to work the next morning. After three days of shift work, I relaxed in the empty marine house. I was watching TV when Kyle walked into the front door. A hairy, barrel-chested man in a black speedo, he shouted, Tell me a story! I'll tell you a story, I responded. I'll tell you a story about a sergeant who screwed over another sergeant by making him work before he even had a chance to acclimate to a new environment. Kyle laughed. It's Carnival, son. We don't have time for that. While my initial reaction towards Kyle wasn't positive, his gregariousness won me over enough to shed tears when his tour ended, and he was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps after six and a half years. Kyle was an infantryman by trade, but he didn't spend much time with the line company as a result of his success on the rifle range. He was an instrument of war, and he dutifully mastered his craft with precision so much that he became a coveted rifle range coach at Edson Range aboard Camp Pendleton. Kyle was born on October 4, 1974, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, a place I would curse much later in life for giving birth to the shopping cart. Throughout his life, Kyle moved with purpose and speed, as if instinctively driven to explore this world. Kyle found service and sacrifice early through simple gestures, like giving his jacket to the cold poor kid in school. He wasn't a saint. He was flawed like all teenage boys. His lack of discipline and disdain for authority resulted in his enrollment at the Wentworth Military Academy in nearby Lexington, Missouri. 
Later in Rio, Kyle would receive care packages from his community, church, and family. The contents of the care packages often included children's clothes, soccer balls, and Smucker's apple butter. Kyle presented the children's clothes to the orphaned and impoverished children of Rio. He threw the soccer balls to the kids on the street from the armored vehicle on his way to work, and he routinely smeared the apple butter on toast or shoved spoonfuls into his mouth every morning and washed it down with coffee. Put the jar in the cart. I'll tell you a story after some toast. After she put the jar in the cart, I pushed it with ease, as if the apple butter greased the stuck swivel wheels. We finished shopping and returned home. In early February 2004, I received a phone call from then Staff Sergeant William Pennington. William was stationed with me and Kyle in Brazil, and we continued our friendship. My girlfriend Tasha, who would later become my wife, answered the phone. I was bottle feeding Tavaya while watching TV. I always admired Tasha's olive complexion, but moments after picking up the phone, I noticed her skin had turned pale. You need to take this call, she said. It's William. I exchanged Tavaya for the phone. What's up, Pennington? Kyle's dead, Frank. He was blown up. After the Marines, Kyle went to Oklahoma Christian University in pursuit of a degree in both journalism and Spanish. He also went into the Army Reserves as a way to help pay for school. He was on his way to graduating, but was called to active duty in November 2003 with the 486th Civil Affairs Battalion out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Back from the store, the twins put away the groceries while I placed four slices of bread in their respective spring-loaded trays of my automatic toaster, and I triggered the lowering mechanism. I opened up the jar of apple butter, imagining Kyle opening a care package. On January 29, 2004, the United States sustained the largest loss of life in Afghanistan at the time. The Army said a weapons cache exploded in Afghanistan and never explained anything more to the eight families that were 7,400 miles away. Those families absorbed the shockwaves and were fragmented that cold Thursday in January. The Army didn't have to tell me a story. I already knew Kyle's. I'm positive Kyle went on patrol with his care package and handed out clothes, toys, and chocolate to Afghan kids. I'm positive the children were being watched by others, just as I watched the orange toaster coils glow. I'm positive the kids fed Kyle information and Kyle acted on it. My automatic toaster radiated 310 degrees of heat on the bread. As I was trying to comprehend the effects of 3,000 degree heat on flesh, the toaster popped, the image vaporized. Paper plates, Dad? Yes. I felt the girl stare as I grabbed the toast slowly and sat it on three plates. One for each of them and two for me. I'll get a butter knife, said one. I'll get milk, said the other. I'll be at the table. I grabbed the apple butter along with the toast. Moments later, we all sat down. I began to tell them a story about apple butter and how it used to be a family and community effort to make. I told them that apple butter would last through harsh winters and communities would make it and hold festivals in October. 
I paused the story, took the knife with my right hand when I thought of Ghazni, Afghanistan, where Kyle took his last breath. The capital city of Ghazni is at the foot of the Hindu Kush mountains, roughly 7,300 feet above sea level. I elevated my left wrist with a starchy plateau laid flat on my palm, my bracelet in my line of sight. I smeared the deep brown apple butter over the caramelized toast like an explosion coating its path with shrapnel and soot. Are you okay, Dad? No. No, I'm not. I entered stage three, emotional disorganization, when I took a bite of the toast. I was surprised by the sweetness of the apple butter, but it didn't ameliorate the bitterness. I was angry at Kyle for not seeing my daughters or me before he left. I was mad at him for answering the call to serve again, even when he'd already done his time. I felt guilty for surviving after 20 years of service, and he had been denied his dreams. I was so occupied with anger, I was oblivious to notice the twins had dismissed themselves to their room. They put me in timeout. While in timeout, I thought more about why Kyle continued his service. I think he missed the sense of purpose and the brotherhood that came with it. I missed it too, so I applied to the San Diego Police Department. I was scheduled to attend the academy in November. I had an appointment with a psychiatrist on the morning of October 22, 2015. At the psychiatrist's office, I took the battery of tests and I waited for the interview. The psychiatrist went into the waiting area where we exchanged greetings. As she led me down the hallway to her office, a volley of questions came out of her like a three-round burst from a service rifle. Are you ready? Are you okay? Why do you look so sad? When we got into her office, she sat down at her desk as I sat in a chair in front of her. I told her a story about being born in the Dominican Republic and raised in Long Island, New York, oftentimes being the only family of color in the neighborhood. She folded her arms like my mother did when she was dissatisfied with me and not buying my bullcrap. I moved past my demographics and continued. I told her more stories about eating government cheese and purchasing food with food stamps, or monopoly money as the bullies referred to. I told her a story of depression after Kyle's death, to which her response was, You had a tough life. She asked if I had flashbacks, and I told her a story about my experiences. She asked me why I wanted to be a police officer. I told her that I saw a purpose, and I wanted to serve my community. She recommended I find another profession. I was a liability and considered a high risk for the department. A few weeks after my visit with the psychiatrist, I drove up to San Clemente, where Kyle's family dedicated a bench in honor of him at the Marine Monument in Semper Fi Park. There's a beautiful view of the San Clemente Pier being swallowed by the Pacific. I sat on Kyle's bench that foggy fall morning. I was slumped over with my head in my hands, rubbing my hair back and forth in frustration. I whispered, I'm trying when my bracelet scratched my forehead. 
I took off the bracelet and studied it for the first time. It was scratched by Babylonian sandstorms and battered by the Afghan metamorphic rock, but you can still make out the engraved print. Sergeant Danton Kyle Seitzinger, OK Army, Enduring Freedom, KIA 29 Jan 04. I got up off the bench to throw the bracelet when I noticed the fog had lifted, and I could see the pier clearly, to the left of beach swings. I remembered a day in March 2011 when I took the twins to meet with William before I deployed to Afghanistan. William and I exchanged stories about Kyle that day. My daughters asked me and William to walk the pier and try out the beach swings, so we did. I pushed the girls on the swing. Their backs crashed against my hand like Newton's cradle. Their blonde locks danced with the onshore breeze as their bodies defied gravity. Higher, Daddy, higher, they demanded until they were parallel with the heavens. Their zygomaticus muscles active, present, and accounted for. At that moment, I could feel Kyle's presence. He was there that spring 2011, just as he was in November 2015. And for the moment, all of us were together again. This realization welcomed me into stage four, recovery and stabilization. And I felt my facial nerve trigger the zygomaticus minor to draw my upper lip up, igniting a chain reaction. My cranial nerve fired signals to the zygomaticus major and I felt the corners begin to turn. I got into my car and returned home. Francisco, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start us off by telling us the story of how you decided to join the military, where you were in life. I was born in 1977 in the Dominican Republic. I came to this country and felt this need to pay it back. This was even before Gulf War One obviously before 9-11, but I felt every immigrant should somehow serve the country. I was a Boy Scout and then went into the Air Force Junior ROTC. I tried to get into the academies, actually. I was aspiring to go to West Point, didn't turn out, and so I immediately enlisted in the Marine Corps at age 16. I needed uh, both of my parents' signatures, but unfortunately, I don't talk to my father, and so my, my last name from that day forward became Martinez Cuello because my mom's name was Cuello, so... The recruiter did some trick where he didn't need my father's signature, and, and so here I am. How many years were you in before you had your first kid? Seven, seven years in, yeah. Can you talk about how it was different to go back out overseas after your daughters were born as opposed to when you would travel before, what it was, how it changed your service in your head? It was difficult trying to figure out who I was, let alone the father I wanted to be, considering I didn't, I didn't have a father or... I had an idea of what fatherhood meant. And, and for me, the, the biggest thing that, that stuck out was that I, I always needed to be there for them. Staying in was, was very difficult because I knew I'd ha I would have to be apart from them. I had to do a lot of sacrifices. I also didn't want to move around a lot, just like I moved around a lot as a kid. As you know, the military, every two, three years, you're, you're moving. And so I had to unfortunately take some job assignments that, you know, I didn't like, like, you know, going to Iraq for a year so that I can solidify my stay in San Diego. You did the traveling for the whole family in a sense so they didn't get moved around. Right. What was your coming home experience like? I had several coming home experiences because the hardest part 
of coming home was Iraq in 2008. Because I was there for a year, you were given your consecutive overseas tour, which is two weeks of vacation. I didn't want to come home at all that whole year because I knew the hardest part would be leaving again. Traveling through Bangor, Maine, and, and then through those processes where the fire department is like giving you a, a welcome home and washing the plane. I had mixed feelings because I knew I, I'm just going to turn around and come back in, in 15 days. And, and it was also very difficult for me to be present when I was um, home because I knew that another clock would start counting down the time between me and my kids. Do you have a preference for if that was to change what you would have done different? Unfortunately, I wouldn't have come home. I really had a difficult time in Iraq. I was on a transition team. My top three leaders were relieved mid-deployment. And so I became in charge while I was on leave. And it was the, the oddest feeling because I'm like, do I have to go home, go back to take charge of this team? And we were being remissioned and going down to the Saudi border. So I would have preferred to just, you know, said, hey, no thanks. I know my daughters would have been affected, but I think it would have been more important for my job to ensure that I was uh, engaged and, and obviously for my ultimate safe return back once the deployment was over. Let's talk about the last time, the final homecoming. You know, when that process, when that final clock started ticking down, when did it become audible and start creating a little bit of anxiety? Yeah, Afghanistan was was good in a sense because it was a, a wonderful opportunity. You know, I got to protect high levels of uh, DOD and to include the Secretary of Defense. That was very rewarding. And at the same time, I, I was able to get some closure because I was in the area where, where Kyle died and so many other friends have died in Afghanistan. But I was also anxious to return home because I, you know, having had experience, I knew that the struggle would be very difficult to reintegrate considering the history and how detached I was. Uh, my kids were getting older now, so they were more aware and will they know that I'm not the same person. Definitely build up anxiety. You mentioned in your piece that having a PTSD rating was eventually the factor that prohibited you from getting a career in law enforcement during the evaluation process. And now that you've had some time between that incident and, and looking back on it, what's your takeaway? I've been through therapy when I was inside through Navy medicine. You know, I didn't necessarily believe in it back then, but I was more hopeful about it. I became very aware that I I might need to go back and to use these services. And so I needed to be honest with the, the VA personnel. Going to therapy is necessary, and I find that I am a better person as a result of it. When you did this story live over the summer in, in 2016, that was the first time I got to meet your wife and your girls. And right before you went on stage, I will never forget, you turned to me and you said, this is the first time they're ever going to hear this story. Why did you decide that the live public performance was the right place and time for them to find out about all this? Uh, because, you know, we, me and my family, we have communication issues. Oh, so you're a family. <laughs> yeah. So I will say that. Um, there's something wrong with me and my ability to communicate, not only with myself, but with other people. I feel like when it's me up there on the spotlight, you actually finally do listen to me and hopefully understand what I'm going through. Talk to me about how writing came into your life. It started with a girl. I wrote this uh, poem, as pathetic as it may be. I, I believe she still has them. But uh, I wrote this poem, and, and she really enjoyed it. And she's just like, wow, you wrote this? And I'm like, yeah, I, I write all the time, but I, I don't. She's like, well, I want another one. I want to see all your works. So I had to go back and, and somehow fabricate a lengthy journal 
of, <laughs> of things. So I, I, needless to say, I work well under pressure. And, and you want to talk about a deadline. Uh, she said, I want to see the notebook tomorrow. And, and so I had to write feverishly. <laughs> but that, that stayed with me. Because of my trauma as a child, I was able to try to make sense of what had happened and uh, really understand what I was feeling at the time. I find that writing is, is for me because it allows me to communicate with myself. English is my second language. I don't necessarily have that connection, but when I write it down and I actually read it again, now I understand like, oh, I'm really hurting inside or I'm really happy here. And here I have proof that I, I can be happy or that I can feel emotions, whereas for so long I felt so detached and emotionless. Do you ever surprise yourself by what comes out? Yeah, all, all the time. Well, specifically in therapy, you know, you have to write about that trauma and then read it over and over again. Each time I wrote about the specific event that was providing me with those stuck points, I learned something new every single time I've read it. Have you had other moments work to create moments that will engender understanding between your wife and your kids and your family and friends just to kind of feel like you're on the same page again? Sure. I mean, I that's another reason why I write. So I'm able to share these stories with you, programs like So Say We All, incoming various veterans writing programs. I think that's important because it allows me to edit it and get it packaged so that it impacts you in a way that helps you understand before we go, uh, the last question I always like to ask people, if you were uh, talking to a service member who had a couple weeks left on the clock before they were out for good and you could give them a piece of advice, what do you think it would be? Don't be afraid. It's not going to be easy, but nothing is easy and you'll get through it. If you need help, ask. Swallow your pride. There's uh, organizations that, that are there to help. Pick up the phone and, and call a friend and, and vent to them. It's not easy, but life isn't easy, so... Francisco Martinez Coelho, thanks for being on Incoming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our second storyteller this hour intersects with Francisco because Frank was there to witness so much of it. Sammy Said was barely a teenager when the U.S. invaded his country. His father was a high-ranking Bath Party officer at the time. And through circumstances that followed, he wound up in the care of the U.S. Marine Corps. Francisco and I sat down with Sammy to hear his story in his own words. So here it is. Thank you very much. So why don't we just start at the very beginning and have you take us through, in your own words, what life was like in Iraq before the invasion under Saddam, and then we can come up to the present moment. I wouldn't say it was that sophisticated life. It was so simple since we were not have any communication with the outside world. There's only two TV channels, which controlled by the government, propaganda, there's only one a radio station, also owned by the government. So literally, we know nothing about what's outside world. Until United States came to Iraq, I was in my mind because of the Iraqi TV, I thought United States not bigger than San Diego, the whole entire United States. That's how they picture it to us. Saddam Hussein and his two sons can't take it with two days. They're like, okay. And how old were you when, when that happened? 12, 12 okay. years old. The invasion began. We lost completely all kind of powers and everything, you know. There's no communication. We don't know nothing. We just see airplanes going back and forth. Next thing we know, the electricity came back, and we watch on television the U.S. military going inside Baghdad, dropping down the statue of Saddam Hussein and putting 
the U.S. flag on it. Let me slow you down for a second. You're 12 years old. Where in Iraq do you and your family located? The West. So tell me about what daily life was like under Saddam before the invasion. For the females part, I'm not like making fun of them or anything, but there's no life for them over there. They just do housework. My father, he was commander in Al-Bath party. He had to dress up in his military uniform and get his copy book and get ready to go to their daily meetings, discussed about these areas who are loyal to Al-Bath party, who's not loyal to Al-Bath party, and if there is an attack, what they're going to do, and things like that. I think I've been in one or two of their meetings. It was back then really boring to me, so I just walked out. But yeah, that's for them. And for us, we all um, students. First grade, they call us Saddam kids. Middle grade, Saddam boys. Mm. And when we're in high school, they call us Saddam lions. So basically, once we hit the middle of school, that's how the law there, you got to learn how to take off the AK-47 and start be able to use it. So you're already beginning to be prepared for the military service? Yes, because every single person, as soon as they hit 17, if they quit from school, they're going to go to the army for eight years. And if they uh, would like to continue school and go to college, they went until they finish the college, then they're going to, the army, uh, recruit them. Did you have any idea what you wanted to be as a student in college, what you wanted to pursue? Back then, yeah, I wanted to be an engineer. I really wanted to be something close to the computers because I saw it only one time on a commercial, and it's I want to know more about it. But, uh, of course, yeah, Iraqi government was prohibited to own your personal computer unless you work for them, and if you work for them, it's like a DVD player. You're not allowed to type codes or anything or even to write a script. Because it's government property. Exactly. So you're 12 years old when the invasion happens and you're being told through the propaganda channels that it's going to take a couple weeks to mop up the Americans. It's not going to last. There's no threat of a downfall looming. Exactly. My town is on the Syrian border. The Iraqi and Syrian government, they opened the border completely. So people were coming in and out freely, no require any passport. So people were coming from all around the world, come to fight the Americans. They come in through our border city, like Moroccan, Saudi Arabia, Syrian, from all around the world. Languages that I never heard in my life. They all came for the same thing, to fight the big devil. Because around that time, Saddam had made a call for essentially jihad. Exactly. As I understand later on, the Iraqis one were not getting paid, but the ones that came from like different countries, they were being paid very well. What was it like psychologically watching all of these foreigners kind of sweeping across the border and these kind of changes happening? I'll just say it's a big shock, just like a snap of finger change. Now the city's open, there's propaganda all over this, you know, whatever TVs they have. My Microphones playing all this military music all the time. You never see any adult person walking in the street, the civilian street, without an AK-47. A father having a bag of the grocery in the hand and an AK-47 in the other hand. So it's something like was big different, something I never seen in my life. So when the invasion happened, as you said, it was over and done with pretty quickly, and you watched most of it happen on television from where you were in the country. Correct. We, um, thanks to U.S. forces, put it like a towers to turn on their radio or turn on their own TV and show us what's actually going on. Because the Iraqi government, when Baghdad fell down, that doesn't mean 
all Iraq did fell down. Each city had their own government that was still in control. That they were telling us Saddam Hussein and his kids still fighting in Baghdad. On TV, we see the American tanks actually wandering in Baghdad and the statues is falling down. Iraqi government kept covering up the reality for a while. But yeah, once we start finding out, I would say it's like a big bomb. Nobody expected something like that happen. The elders, the way I understand, they were expecting just 1991. The U.S. forces came in and they left. They did not occupate till they took Saddam Hussein down. And the young ones, just like me, like we didn't kind of don't believe it because the way they taught us and the way they were showing it to us, where's all these powers, you know, that all these supernatural things you said you guys are going to use. We saw it all falling down, collapse it. And the loots start happening in the city. The looting started happening yeah. afterwards. What was that like watching your entire world kind of get turned upside down? What does that do to your vision of what's real? To me, I would say seeing things like that, I'm going to say it took me about a month to really wake up from a shock, to really believe like this has happened. After a month exactly, that's when the first U.S. Humvees drove in our street. And that's when the reality really hit you up and say, okay, Iraq is no more. And that's the way they were showing it. Iraq is no more. The propaganda now start going in around street. You know, U.S. forces here to take the oil. They're going to kill everybody and they leave. It's also made more confusion about what the American doing. And it's also add more fear to the people to talk even or get closer to the Americans. Were they trying to conscript? Yeah, they were trying to put in everything back again. By then, Saddam Hussein already was on the run. Um, they were saying, oh, we still receive orders from him. His commandment still coming in. We still doing the underground command of the Iraqi army still in control. It was, at this point, it's hard to believe it anymore. How did you see your father reacting? He was in the Ba'ath Party. He was in the military command. What was his reaction to watching this world collapse? Anger. A lot of anger. He was breaking everything in the house. Every five minutes, bringing the guns outside and start shooting straight in the air. And then coming back inside and breaking up every single dish. He was like going through high rage. And the way I see that, because, you know, high commander, something that everybody afraid of, now he's nothing. So that's something I didn't understand at the time. But later on, it went to my head and I was like... That's what happened at that point. What was happening at the time with Ba'ath Party or government officials after the invasion? Well, they start getting meetings. First, their meetings, I remember they were only talking about, let's collect as much as we can guns, guns, explosives, as much as we can, and let's start stash it around, as they call weapon cache. Bring your barrels, you know, like the war big barrels. They dig it under the ground, they put it and cover it up. All around, like the villages and cities, everywhere there was plenty of these caches. They have explosions, weapons, ammunition, whatever you need as a military equipment. When they did accept, that's it, Saddam is no longer in power, even though he wasn't captured yet at that point. What they call it Salafi Sunni is like the more extremist Muslims with the big beard start showing up. Salafi. And those were not allowed around, but now they are more allowed to go, you know, inside the mosque and uh, giving the speeches, which is were not allowed before. And are these Salafis, were they, they all Iraqi or were they foreign national? Oh, no, mixed. The majority of those who Salafi were came, they were coming from the areas where there was like Afghanistan and Chechnya and those areas where there was war with the Soviet Union. And they were start training the people because the Iraqis, their armies learned to fight like a regular army, but to fight between the streets like a gang, they call it a gang war. 
that something was new to them and they start more cooperative with Al-Qaeda, people who had more experience about things like that. And before they arrived, would, how would you characterize the religious climate in the country? Was it moderate comparative to what came after? It started getting open more. It was restricted. The religious, you're only allowed to say only these things. All these restrictions were lifted. The imams had no power under Saddam. No, they didn't. They had to say what Saddam told them to say. Al-Ba'ath gave them the, the script. Now it's open. It's more uh, violent. For now it's more about jihad, fighting the infidels, a lot of hate speech. And they start bringing pictures, most of them photoshopped and saying, oh, look what the American doing to us now, so we got to stand. Most of these pictures literally were not even American uniform. So they were like using any fake propaganda against the U.S. forces. At this point, as far as I remember, Americans is in the area, but they still did not meet up with the tribes leaders. There was miscommunication. Did you encounter any pressure to join these organizations, the kind of insurgent movement that was forming? Yes, we, we have to. It's whatever the dads say it have to be done. You know, with the propaganda, you see yourself as a hero. And then and within time, I start seeing it's no, it's not what they've been telling us. It's not what they say. They start send us to the suicide bomb classes. Those who they've been chosen to commit suicide bombing, you know, they put them in that vehicle, get close to the American or to the infidels and press this button, the vehicle going to explode. They say, oh, once you're going to blow yourself up, you're going to go straight to the heaven. You get your 72 virgins and you're going to get a crown of gold and a lot of luxury things you're going to get once you do it. At that point, that's when I told them, well, if you know all that, how come don't you do it? And that was my turn point. How was this concept of martyrdom received in a moderately Muslim population that hadn't had that growing up until this political movement kind of started introducing it. Exactly. Like, there was nothing like that before. We never even heard of it. It was something new, but if the imam tell you that the sky is red, then you're going to say, yes, it's red. Mm. So people follow the imam blindly. And the tribe leaders, those are the highest to influence. Those are the most powerful ones. Whatever they say, it will go. So around this time, you have this kind of break of faith in what you're being told to do. And you're about how old at this point? 14. And you're being selected or at least a candidate for fighting on one side of the fight or the other. Correct. So when did you start encountering the actual Americans on the ground and have that personal experience there? After my encounter with the suicide training leader, when I told him, well, if you know all that, how come you, don't you do it? Uh, after that, I got badly beat up by my family, tribe, and the group. They were called them al-Tawheed al-Jihad. It's powerful al-Qaeda. They beat me up so bad that I woke up in the hospital. It was something I couldn't handle. I just knew it for a fact. If I'm going back for what I said, I'm dead. I'm going to die. You knew at 14 that you'd been exiled. Exactly. For saying something like that, that's too big. So I knew it. I'm going to get killed. I decide my only refuge at that point is U.S. forces. Even though I didn't want to go work with them, at the beginning when I had encountered with them, I didn't tell them anything about my family because I was scared and I was still confused. So I told them the terrorists saw me. I saw them where they hide their guns and now they want to kill me. So if you guys exchange protection, I'll show you where they hide their bombs and IEDs. It was a tough decision back then. The Marines, there were units called the head team. It's a human intelligence team. They took a decision, yes, if I prove that I am saying the truth, not like trying 
trying to lead them into an ambush. So I was like, okay, well, I'll show you what's close to the base. And that way you guys don't have to go far and be afraid of any combat attacks. I ran away from the hospital straight to the camp. So you actually had to walk up to their doors. Yes. Did you find that there was any trust issues on their part when they first encountered you? Yes, it was big time. Like it's something that doesn't happen every day. You see a 14 years old, you know, young guy with, well, his clothes is ripped off, not wearing any shoe. And he's offering you information in one of the most dangerous cities that work against Americans. They call the triangle of death. So it was really hard to them to trust me at the beginning, especially after three days, they find out who I am. Once my tribe found out that the American picked up this weapon, they kind of put it one-to-one. He worked with them. So they did what they called in the Middle Eastern culture is release of blood. So if you're from different tribe, you want to come kill me, my tribe have to come defend me and they have to kill you back for killing me. But if they release my blood, you could kill me and you get reward for it. Nobody will do anything to you. So that's what's release of blood. My picture on release blood was all over town. Two of the intel officers pulled me to the side and it's like, all right, now tell us all the truth. Nothing but the truth. We want to know everything. Why they want to kill you. Why all this going on. Because they knew you wouldn't have been marked that heavily. Exactly. I wouldn't be executed so fast. If, if I was just saw them hiding weapons, they wouldn't looking for me to kill me that fast. When you say your picture was around town, how did they spread the word? It's like the wanted poster with my face picture on it all over town. I didn't see it myself, but they took pictures of it as the convoy driving through the city. And they took a lot of pictures of it and they showed it to me inside the base. I was in deep shock. I knew it, they might kill me, but I thought it will not escalate that bad. It will not go all the way to release of blood and paying people to kill me. For three days, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. Now my options are way limited. What I'm going to do is stay with the American. I don't work for them. I'm not officially working for these U.S. forces. Go back. I'm going to get killed. Run away. I'm too young. I imagine you must have been terrified because there was no promise that the U.S. would have kept you in any capacity. I mean, they could have turned you away. That's one of my big fear. Like, the, they could have just said, well, you got to leave the base. At one point, they did it as a joke. They locked me to the gate of the base on my home city as I was still wearing the Marines cami. And they said, well, Sam, uh, sorry, but we just received the order from the colonel. We can't keep you on base anymore. So good luck for you. We'll try to protect you, but you're on your own. I think that was the last word I remember before I passed out. Marine Corps knows jokes, right, Frank? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You know, part of me is dying inside laughing, but I feel terrible that that actually happened to you. You know, it's interesting to note, though, too, because it's hard for him to, to trust the U.S. forces because they didn't even provide him with who he was dealing with, you know, the human exploitation team, they just had random names. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, right? Because like, so. I, I would have to ask him information and he's like, oh, it was some guy named John. And I was just like, what are you talking about, some guy named John? So there was definitely some some trust issues on, on, on his end. So he didn't even know the name of the officers no. and the enlisted he was serving with and head team <clears> at the time. And a lot of time. That was one of the hard things working with the head team. It's the constant change of names and you got to keep up with that. And the constant change of captains, they keep changing them and sending new people. Now I have to work with this person and start explaining to him my situation because they're not always tell him, hey, this is, you're going to work with this guy on the base. He's not an interpreter. His situation is one, two, three. No, they, some people, they just leave my file and walk away. So, so I had. You're never really building any kind of relationship with individual members of the team. No. 
You mentioned that the head team in the Marine Corps is kind of like the intelligence gathering side of operations. Frank, can you give us like a brief synopsis of what the head team's function is in country? The human exploitation team, that's what that's what it is, the head. It consists with interrogator translators, intelligence officials, and, and counterintel. You know, a small team. Their job is to go out and collect information, talk with the locals, and, and try to gather as much information so that they can report back and they can conduct operations based on that intelligence. So at what point did you feel like the head team finally saw you as an asset? Once they found out who my father really is. Right. And what was your father doing at this point? Uh, he was the commander of the Western region area. For Al-Qaeda? Yes. He was the commander of all operation of Al-Qaeda in this area. So um, basically they were putting you in a position where you had to either... Yeah, the work against your father. Is and that a difficult choice, even after all you've been through? It is. It's difficult choice. Back then, it was really difficult. You got to give up on everything from family, mother, sister, brother, everything. You will be not wanted by any of them. You to them just dead, or they want you dead. So that's the hard part, that you're leaving everything behind to go into unknown. As you said, I don't know what the head team were plans to do to me until like way later on they told me, okay, well now you catch up with your English, we're going to hire you as a translator. All that time my English was not that good and I was not officially a worker with U.S. forces. How long was it before you were able to work directly with a team? Four years after. Mm. And you were still under protective custody more or less during that time? Something like that. So the way it happened, they told me to not inform right away any team I work with. I got my first assignments to work with a BTT 4x2 all the way in the middle of nowhere. Like literally no towns, no anything around us. The closest point, probably 50 kilometers away. So if something happened to us, we on our own. So that's when I thought to myself, well, I probably need to tell them. But I didn't. I was scared. I was feeling so comfortable with the team because they got me in as brother to them. So I was scared if I tell them the truth. Okay, this is my background. They're going to kick me out. But what happened in a small encounter with um, some corrupted uh, Iraqi counterpart in the Iraqi uh, border patrol, they identified me there and they threatened me right in front of a group of Marines. That was just me and another translator. And the other translator like kind of went in a shock. He didn't believe what he said. I didn't want to translate, but the other interpreter translated. At that point, there was not too many options to me. And at that point, they told me, would you want to stay with us or you want to go back to Camp Al-Assad and work with the company and they assign you to a different team? It was a tough decision. I really liked that team. Like, they were so family to me. I was remissioned halfway through my deployment. I was actually on leave. I received a phone call. My top three team members were relieved. They said that I would have to go back, cut my leave early. I'd have to take the team down to RR. My whole world was spinning. And RR is the forward outpost. Right. It's it's actually on the Saudi border, the port city. We had stopped in Altakadam, TQ, Camp TQ. And I met the new team. So I found that I was going to get absorbed. I blocked out a lot of that because it was a bad deployment in the fact that my morale and my spirit was broken because I didn't know what the mission was. It was constantly changing. My team was essentially absorbed by another team, and so I had to follow someone else. And, and so there, there was a lot of friction there. And then all of a sudden, during one of these convoys, I'm in charge of the interpreters. I think I was in charge of upwards around 36 in Al-Anbar province. 
you know, here comes Sammy. He's like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm working for you now. And I'm just like, yeah, no, you're not. Or, or something to that effect. And uh, I definitely um, was, was a little difficult on Sammy. The good thing about my team leader was that he did listen to me and he knew I had ownership over the interpreters, meaning like I took care of them. I made sure that they were paid on time and that it was correct. They were working for the Americans and that's obviously a lot of high risk. You can't just like go back because what happens when the Americans leave? They're, they're essentially going to get killed. When I found out about uh, Sammy's story, I knew like, sir, we got to take this guy. We can't give him up. We'll make it happen. I'll, I'll push all the paperwork. I had all the contacts from the old place, which is in uh, Walid State Department personnel directly. And I still had those contacts and I kept pushing them. I said, hey, we got to get this guy out of here. So when did you two on this convoy start actually having a conversation? What was the moment you developed the relationship with then-Lieutenant Martinez Coelho? When first I met him, I was, you know, short guy, uh, super skinny, and dragging my back behind me. And he was like, who are you? And I was like, Sammy. And he's like, no, you're not. Yes, here's my assignment paper. And he looked at the paper. It's like, oh, they messed up. I need a different Sammy, not you. And, and he looked at me for a minute and said, well, you will do. Come on, bring your stuff. <laughs> At what point from this position and this job were you starting to look at getting that visa taken care of and getting to the States? I think the day that the visa kicked in, and once again, thank, thank you, sir. He's the one who started it and really pushed on it all the way in. He's the one who did not like want me just to leave the team. And he's the one one day I'm sitting on my uh bunk. My bunk was close to your guy's room. That's mm -hmm. why I used to play music so loud. He come in with uh, Captain Shen and say, uh, come with us. I'm going through, um, I'll say, kind of emotional breakdown. There was three of my tribe leaders came disguised as Iraqi army, and they came trying to find me. Mm. And they got captured. Without even asking me, uh, the major right away said, you're not getting out of the base anymore. It hurt me, like, okay, that's it. You're just going to sit here, be useless. Right. So I was literally in tears. Lieutenant Martinez and Captain Shin walk in and say, come on, come with us. And they say, all right, do you guys all know what Sammy's story? And one Marine say, oh, well, we know he's from this city. And what about you? Well, we don't know anything. So Lieutenant Martinez kicked in and threw it. It was like he dropped a tree in the lake. They all like opened their eyes. I was walking with them as a high risk because if I'm high risk, they in high risk. I'm risking their life. But what I liked from him when he said it, it's up to you guys. We are Marines. We face dangers. We could send him back and there will be no dangers and we all left sleep and happy like beauty sleep. Or we keep him with us and we push this paper. And if there is dangers, that's what we're here for. And that really pumped me up. And I remember one of the Marines like say, oh, well, why didn't you guys tell us about, the, about these Iraqis? And Latin Martinez back then said, well, so you don't shoot them. Yeah, from that day, my access outside the base, like, was so limited. I would go out with them, and I became, like, the newspaper of the team. My job is to take pictures. <laughs> I, I mean, I do translate and everything, but I got that Nikon picture uh, camera, and I start become the photographer for the team. Your team left before the other team. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember that day uh, very, very well, because you removed the patch and Fidel from your vest, yeah. And you gave it to me and he's like, hold on it. And it say infidel in Arabic and then it say it in English, but it's just read infidel in Arabic. It doesn't say what it mean. And my English was not perfect. And I was like, what it mean? And he's like, that's what you are. And I was yeah. like, okay. So I, it took me literally like 
six months later, I have it on my vest. For one time I'm sitting on Google, I was like, let me look it up. What did that mean? And I was like, okay, I like it. I'll keep it. (laughs) (laughs) Tell our listeners, what did it mean to you? Because this is what they call in the military a morale patch. Right. At the beginning, I, I just took it as a gift from a friend. You know, my commander, my friend, the one who was there uh, a couple of times I had encounters with Marines, he will always help me. But I didn't know what it mean. And once I found out what it mean, not like a person come from Islamic culture, I was expecting myself to throw it away because, oh, I'm not that. But as I was holding it, actually, I am with that. I, I don't care if you're Allah saying he give us 72 virgins. I don't believe that. So you want to call me infidel? Okay, I'll... I'll put it proudly, that how much it meant to me after that. became a badge. Francisco, could you just talk a little bit about how the process works of getting somebody, a, a national, out of the country and into the visa program of the States? It's a definitely a, a long process. A, at the time, it was averaging two years. And I, and I want to say that I think we were able to push you through because he was uh, such a high risk. I think we got it down to one year. You can tell me yeah. if I'm correct. No, you're okay. correct. The business is all about relationships. I had a relationship with the, the counselor official that I, I was dealing with. They're dealing with a lot of paperwork. I wouldn't hound them. I would just say, hey, I just, just want to let you know I'm still here because obviously there's also turnover. You have to make sure that you keep in touch and you engage these people. You know, a month, we could have been remission or I could have been hurt. You know what I'm talking about. You can kill them with kindness. And so when did you finally get on the plane and how did that come over? I guess one that bad luck followed me around. My paper got lost twice. It was next month I was supposed to be sending my passport and get the visa, and the papers got lost. Back then, U.S. forces, Marines leaving, Army taking over. There was big changes. So tracing that papers, it was a big hustle. So we started a new package. I remember contacted you, and I say, sir, I started a new package, and he's like, I will submit a recommendation. I was like, thank you very much. And that package got lost again. Also, Army leaving, Navy taking over. Navy, a captain, which is equal to a colonel in the Marines. Mm-hmm. He was the, the law office thing. I right. forgot what they called him, the S-1. And he's like, okay, well, I'm getting your papers done within this month. That's when I start working on Camp al-Assad, which is one of the biggest bases in Iraq. And he's like, I'm getting your paper done this month. And to be honest, I don't believe him. You're right. All these people tried. At that point, I was losing hope. They submitted the papers. I guess and they contacted all the Marines that I worked before and they all put a good word. The package submitted and it went through faster than I ever expected. I was at the chow hall and came back and there was a sticker on my room saying, pack your stuff, you're flying tomorrow. But in my mind, that's to us as interpreter, that's when there is a mission. Mm-hmm. So all I prepare is like few clothes and my vest and my helmet and we did fly from Al-Assad to uh, Camp Green Zone. So that was weird. That's not our restriction area. And I was like, why are we here? The Navy uh, captain came and I was like, oh, well, your paper approved. You didn't flip the paper on the back of the door. I was like, oh, no, I didn't. I just read, get ready. And he's like, oh, well, you got approved. We're going to go get your visa right now. I was like, I'm not even carrying my passport on me. And he's like, that's not an issue. The only things officially saying that I am Sammy is military ID for that. Let me access on the base. Beside that, I have nothing. He's like, that's fine. So they took me to the U.S. Embassy, take pictures of me, print it on papers, and they seal it in envelopes, gave me five envelopes, uh, sent me on my way. I didn't believe it till I land. And first I flew to Jordan, from Jordan to John Kennedy Airport in New York. And I, I was literally shocked. 
and there. I, I still not believe uh, every five minutes I have to pinch myself. I am in America. No, I'm mm. not. Like, it, it's so much fear. I walk in one step forward and two steps backward. Uh, I remember like three days after that, uh, they were showing me, they wanted me to join the Marines at the beginning, and which is, was a big dream for me. So I was coming to the MCRD here in San Diego, and I've been told, he work here. Right. And I was like, really? I, I would like to meet him. So first I text him, this is Sammy, the Iraqi interpreter. With a matter of minutes, Captain Martinez was knocking on my door in the MCRD. And he's like, when did you come in? I was like, three days ago. <laughs> he was like, I don't want to say it. It's because probably some Marines will say they are weak, but I, I think I saw some tears in his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> you going to cop to that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. Of course it was uh, It was an emotional moment. I mean, like what the guy's been through, I mean, that's that's intense. And and so, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't doubt that my eyes did swell up. It also validated my work. You go through so much in Iraq, and then you're in charge of 36 interpreters and it's just like some you can trust, some some you can't. And so it's just like it's such a hard thing to manage, you know, emotionally. Yeah, you have to care for them. But at the same time, you know, no better friend, no worse enemy type of situation. Hearing about his story and then showing up at MCRD of all places where where they make Marines. And I'm just like, wow, this this is really cool. And how's it been for you ever since? I mean, how long ago was that? 2010. I will say, first of all, it was big shock, really big culture shock, even though I say I'm more adopted to it because I stayed with the Americans for a while, but I stayed with the military and I, I didn't ever cross my mind that, okay, those who I work with, it's not 0, 0.0 something out of the U.S. society. They're not that big society, mm -hmm. but to me, that, they were all America. You'd never encountered an American civilian before. Never. Big difference. Mm -hmm. Big difference. Taking me first, like to try my first beer, get wasted from my second cup. It's motivation, even if you were not born into it, but what you see, what this place offer to you, you could probably say, yes, it's my home and you're willingly to defend it. You see the people that are around you, each person here have different opinion. They could do whatever they want. That's something I like, like whatever they want and have whatever opinion they want. You don't like your religious leader? All right, we'll move on. Don't, don't listen to him. Close his speaker and move on. So that's something I, I really love in this country, including beer. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for being on Incoming, you guys. Sammy, you. the boy who was raised by the Marine Corps. Yeah. And yeah. Captain Francisco Martinez Goya. You're right. That's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Music by Costa, featuring John Patterson and Diego Cadaval. Outro music is by Tim32, a.k.a. Tim Koch. At KPBS, John Decker is our program director. Nate John is web editor. Emily Jankowski is our technical director. And Kurt Cohen is our audio engineer. Funding is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veteran Arts Initiative of the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org incoming or at incomingradio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is brought to you by the San Diego County Toyota dealers. Committed to a reliable driving experience with vehicles like the 2021 RAV4 with Toyota Safety Sense technology and normal eco and sport for tailored driving dynamics. Learn more at buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.